Well, well, well. Good morning, everybody. How are we all doing today? Uh, I promise I had something clever to say here in the beginning, and now I'm drawing a blank. But that's all right. Only thing new in my life is a new microphone. Not that that'll really change things for you much, but I hope it cuts down on editing time. All right. With that being said, we can bop right on into today's story. I'm sure some of you remember this case from a while back. I believe my favorite murder covered it. Um, I mean, they've done like 500, so probably. But it is often left out of the, quote, best serial killer discussions. And I believe it holds a place. Our case today highlights second chances, a model prisoner, and a story of how it's never really over until the fat lady sings. Today, I bring you Austrian serial killer Jack Unterweger, and I think I'm saying that right. My name is Eli, and this is Murder in the Morning. My sources for today come from abcnews.com, All That's Interesting, Wikipedia, and the rest I will put down below. Our story begins in December of 1978, just west of Vienna. 24-year-old Johann, aka Jack Unterweger, stood trial for the murder of 18-year-old sex worker Margaret Schaefer by strangling her to death with her own bra. When he took to the stand, he spoke of how he could see his mother's face in that of Margaret's, hoping to find sympathy from the jury, as he had once been abandoned by his mother. This would only backfire and cause more anguish, quickly receiving a life sentence in prison for her murder. His life of lying, stealing, and hurting others had finally caught up to him. Maybe that's why now, Jack suddenly showed a change of heart once in prison for good. Born in Judenburg, Austria, on August 16th, Jack had a troubled childhood. His mother, Teresa, was in and out of jail for fraud and other crimes. His father, an American soldier by the name of Jack Becker, was never really in the picture. By age three, he had been sent off to Carinthia in southern Austria to live with his, quote, rough-and-tough grandfather. Here, He learned to steal farm animals from his grandfather and essentially lead a life of crime in general. His first arrest came when he was 16 years old, and for the next eight years, he himself was in and out of prison. Quote, between 1966 and 1974, he was convicted 16 times, mostly for theft-related offenses, but also for pimping and sexual assault on a sex worker, end quote. In 1974, Jack began his life sentence at Stein Prison, and like I said, he wanted to show everybody that he could be better and that he would be better. According to All That's Interesting, previously illiterate, Jack learned to read and write and seemingly couldn't stop once he started. He wrote poems, short stories, novels, and even plays. His book, End Station, forgive my pronunciation, Zuchthaus, a.k.a. Terminal Prison, won a literary prize in 1984. 
his autobiography, Fige Fewer, which is translated to Purgatory, zoomed to the top of bestseller lists and was adapted into a movie, all from prison. Soon, Jack's writings would attract the attention of Austria's creative elite. Peter Humer, an Austrian historian and talk show host, was enchanted by Jack's autobiography. It was authentic, a real cry, he said. Meanwhile, author Elfried Jelinek, who would later win a Nobel Prize for literature, raved that Unterweger's autobiography had, quote, clarity and great literary qualify. Qualify? That doesn't make sense. Quote, he was so tender, said Alfred, a magazine editor. After visiting Unterweger in prison, he said, we decided we had to get him pardoned. Thus, an unlikely campaign was born to acknowledge Jack Unterweger as both an artist and as a rehabilitated man. Soon, scores of intellectuals and government officials alike began campaigning for his early release. As a statement signed by supporters put it, quote, Austrian justice will be measured by the Unterweger case, end quote. Many people saw Jack as an essential reminder that a person could rise above their circumstances. Quote, Unterweger represented the great hope of intellectuals that, through the verbalization of problems, you can somehow get to grips with them, Humer said. We wanted to believe him very badly. This part of Jack's story alone is exceptional. I mean, when's the last time you've heard of anyone ha having been granted a pardon due to public pressure? It's almost as, it's almost a fairy tale. But sometimes when we shine a light so pointedly in one direction, we often tend to miss what's actually right in front of us. Many of Jack's poems and writings were layered with unsettling or creepy passages. For example, he wrote, quote, No theme is more poetic than the death of a beautiful woman. Or in another, quote, You still seem so strange and distant and lively. Death, but one day you will be close and full of flames. Come, lover, I am there. Take me. I am yours. Normally, I wouldn't bat an eye because I don't really understand poetry. All props to you. But this coming from a convicted murderer? Hmm. In 1985, the pressure had mounted enough for an appeal. However, the Austrian president at the time refused this petition because Jack had, Jack had not yet served the court-mandated 15-year prison sentence. Which, I mean, good on him, but he was in there for life, so. Five years later, Jack officially became eligible, and the campaign succeeded, with his release in May of 1990. The prison governor, or the warden, I guess, said of Jack, quote, We will never find a prisoner so well prepared for freedom. I'm thinking maybe prepared wasn't the right word. But let's see. Unterweger immediately leveraged his newfound fame, selling his work and appearing on radio stations and morning shows. He fully immersed himself into journalism. Or did he? 
four months after his release, a sex worker named Blanka Bakova was found murdered in the then Czechoslovakia, strangled by her own bra. Focused solely on his writings and the appearance of a changed man, neither the media nor police picked up on the fact that she was murdered in the same exact way Margaret Schaefer had been years ago. Or maybe they simply didn't want to. Maybe nobody wanted to be wrong about Jack and his so-called revival, this reformed person. So they turned a blind eye to these important details. Either way, life continued, and so did the murders. According to Mark Oliver, seven more women were murdered in the subsequent months, each following a chillingly similar pattern. The victims were prostitutes or sex workers who had been strangled with their bras and then dumped in the woods. In other words, they were an echo of Jack Unterberger's first kill. But the newly freed Unterberger seemed to have grown far beyond the violence that defined his early years. He'd become something of an Austrian literary sensation. He gave readings, staged his plays, and worked as a reporter. In fact, Jack Unterberger established himself as a key journalist investigating the recent string of prostitute murders. Shamelessly, Unterweger interviewed Vienna's chief of police and penned, new and penned newspaper essays about the deaths, end quote. Again, a screaming red flag right there. A man convicted of killing a sex worker, helping police investigate the murder of other sex workers who were killed in the same manner. Open your eyes. Soon, his reputation would grant Jack a trip overseas to Los Angeles. He was assigned to investigate the, quote, terrible conditions of American sex workers versus that of the European. Again, what the fuck? You're feeding right into everything this man dreams of. After landing on U.S. soil, Unterweger immediately checked into the infamous Cecil Hotel. If you don't remember the Cecil Hotel, let me offer you a quick refresher. And this comes from Chris Callahan of American Ghost Walk. Quote, the Cecil Hotel is widely considered amongst the most haunted hotels in the world and has seen so many bizarre accidents, mysterious deaths, premeditated murders, and suicides that many feel it can't all just be a coincidence. This must indeed be a place of real darkness and evil. Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker, was an American serial killer who stayed at the Cecil Hotel in Los Angeles during his crime spree in the mid-1980s. He killed at least 13 people and committed several other crimes such as rape and burglary. He was known for his terrifying and brutal, brutal attacks of his victims, many of whom were asleep in their own homes. He would enter the homes through unlocked windows or doors and would often bludgeon or shoot his victims. He was eventually captured, convicted, and sentenced to death in 89. No fewer than 16 people have lost their lives within the walls of the Cecil Hotel. And the most captivating of all is the story of 21-year-old Canadian student Elisa Lamb, who was featured in the Netflix documentary crime scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel. Whether this hotel is haunted or whether the mysteries surrounding the property are merely spun from myth, rumor, coincidence, and urban legend 
is up for debate. But what isn't up for debate, this old place has some dark stories to tell, end quote. So yeah, this is where our murderer Jack Unterberger stayed during his time in L.A., fitting. While, quote, researching, the, LA, the LAPD even gave this man ride-alongs around the city, showing him everything he wanted or needed to know. During his five-week stay in the States, three sex workers were murdered. Shannon Exley, Irene Rodriguez, and Peggy Booth were each beaten, sexually assaulted, and then strangled with their bra. Finally, police in both countries had become suspicious of Jack Unterweger and decided to look more into him. Turns out, his timeline of travel around Europe, Czechoslovakia, Austria, and even the U.S. matched up perfectly with the deaths of numerous sex workers. When word reached Jack that he was a suspect in the killings, he immediately fled. Quote, Unterweger fled from the U.S. to Switzerland, then Paris, then back to Miami, where his story would, finally, begin its bloody conclusion. It was in Miami where authorities finally caught up with Unterweger and arrested him in February of 1992. In the end, the FBI caught him by convincing him that they were reporters from a magazine by the name of Success, ready to pay him $10,000 for the chance to hear his story. Jack Unterweger took the bait, and instead of sitting down with a doting reporter, he walked into a room filled with U.S. Marshals. He relished in the attention of the press ever since his writing career took off while in prison, and once released, he posed for high-fashion photo shoots, went on TV to discuss his beloved works, all while continuing to court his fawning press. Ultimately, his love for attention was his undoing. After his capture, he was soon extradited back to Austria. Still, many of Jack's former defenders stood by their man. If he was the killer, he would be one of the cases of the century, stated Humor. Statistically, the chance that I would know one of the cases of the century is so unlikely that, therefore, I think he is not guilty. I mean, how pretentious can you be, Mr. Humor? Jack had lived a double life in more ways than one. During his trial, some woman wept during the proceedings, believing Unterweger to be an innocent victim. Other women testified to his unsettling behavior. Eventually, several factors, including his lack of an alibi, led to his conviction on June 29, 1994. That very night, Jack Unterweger hanged himself in prison. One Austrian politician dryly quipped that it was Unterweger's, quote, best murder. I cannot bear going back to a cell, Jack had said after his capture, and he stayed true to his word and chose death over incarceration. Following his death, even Unterweger's former defenders acknowledged that they had fallen for a myth, end quote. And that, folks, is the incredibly true incredible incredible true story of reformed murderer turned serial murderer, Jack Unterweger. If you would like to read his autobiography, Purgatory, or Fugehuer, it is available on Amazon for about 20 bucks. However, it's only available in German, so 
quite limiting. I hope you liked that one. You know how I enjoy figuratively spending my time in Europe. Stick around a bit for a decades-old Vermont cold case. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Love you. I have nodes. What are nodes? Vocal nodules, the rubbing together of your vocal cords at above average rates without proper lubrication. They sit on your windpipes and they crush your dreams. The key is early diagnosis. I'm living with nodes, but I am a survivor. I just have to pull back because I am limited. Because I have nodes. That's a classic line from the award-winning movie Pitch Perfect. My throat kind of hurts, so... I brought it back east for our bonus story today. This is a listener slash best friend recommendation. The Bennington Triangle of Vermont. Bennington Triangle of Vermont. Titled Inside the Unsolved Disappearances of the Bennington Triangle. Written by John Kurowski of All That Is Interesting. Quote, Followers of folklore and aficionados of the paranormal are likely familiar with the Bermuda Triangle and perhaps even southeastern Massachusetts Bridgewater Triangle. But one lesser-known relative of these area of these areas holds more than its fair share of tantalizing mysteries, the Bennington Triangle of Vermont. Dubbed as such by author Joseph A. Citro, the Bennington Triangle is a loosely defined area that encompasses the ghost town of Glastonbury or Glastonbury, once a small logging community centered on a mountain in southwestern Vermont. Abandoned at the end of the 19th century after the end of the logging boom, the greater Glastonbury area is now mostly untouched and is considered remote even by Vermont standards. Starting with the string of missing persons over 70 years ago, the now abandoned town has been the eerie setting of numerous unexplained disappearances, unsolved murders, and bizarre sightings that continue to this day. In 1945, a five-year span of disappearances began in the Bennington Triangle with the vanishing of Mitty Rivers, a 74-year-old local hunting guide. Rivers led a party of four hunters around the area of Hell Hollow in the southwest woods of Glastonbury before he was suddenly lost. After an unsuccessful initial search, many still believed that this knowledgeable woodsman would be able to survive and soon surface in town. However, this was not the case. Soon, more than 300 concerned locals and U.S. Army soldiers combed through the vast wilderness for eight days, turning up not a single shred of evidence as to the whereabouts of rivers. The following year saw arguably the most infamous missing persons case in Vermont history, the disappearance of Paula Weldon. Weldon was an 18-year-old student at Bennington College who decided to hike a leg of the Long Trail during Thanksgiving break when most of her peers had returned home for the holiday. Last seen on Sunday, December 1st, 1946, wearing easy-to-spot red and entering the long trail near Glastonbury Mountain, Weldon never showed up for her Monday classes, spurring a massive search party of more than 1,000 people and a reward of $5,000. Despite the large turnout, numerous aircraft utilized in a variety of assisting law enforcement departments 
no clues to her fate were ever discovered. Many, including Weldon's father, criticized the authorities' lack of, of sophisticated methods in handling the case, which actually served as a catalyst for the founding of the Vermont State Police seven months later. The case remains open to this day. Exactly three years to the day after the vanishing of Paula Weldon, the Bennington Triangle saw one of its more seemingly supernatural disappearances. That day, a 68-year-old man named James E. Tedford boarded a bus to Bennington after visiting relatives in St. Albans, Vermont. Numerous eyewitnesses, including the driver, later confirmed that Tedford had been in his seat as late as the last stop before Bennington. Yet, when the bus finally pulled into the town, Tedford was nowhere to be found. After he implausibly vanished into thin air while inside of a moving vehicle, baffled passengers noted that Tedford's luggage and an open bus timetable remained on his seat. If the witnesses are correct, Tedford would have disappeared from his seat as the bus was traveling down Route 7 through the Bennington Triangle. Nearly a year later, in mid-October 1950, eight-year-old Paul Jepson went missing. He was last seen happily playing in the family pickup truck by his mother, who left to go tend to the pegs at the dump where she and her husband were caretakers. Then, he vanished without a trace. In addition to the hundreds assembled for a search party, a New Hampshire sheriff brought in a bloodhound to sniff out the missing boy. The dog was able to pick up his scent, but abruptly lost the trail at a nearby crossroads, suggesting a possible abduction by a motorist. As the case dragged on without resolution, some suggested that Jepson met an early demise at the hands of his parents and was dinner for the pegs. Dark. But, in keeping with the eerie feeling of the Bennington Triangle, the boy's father told the Albany Times Union that it was perhaps, quote, the lure of the mountains that pulled in his missing son as the boy, quote, talked of nothing else for days prior to the disappearance. Only about two weeks later, 53-year-old Frida Langer, an experienced hiker and survivalist familiar with the area, went missing on the Somerset area of the Long Trail bordering East Glastonbury. After hiking a brief half-mile with her cousin, Herbert Eisner, Langer fell into a stream and went back to their camp to change her clothes, where her husband was resting with a hurt knee, but neither her husband nor her cousin ever saw her again. Helicopters from the Connecticut Coast Guard and the U.S. Army in Massachusetts, as well as local aircraft from Citizens and the Vermont Aeronautics Commission, helped search for Langer. As many as 400 people, including the National Guard, meticulously combed the surrounding areas, yet found nothing. Soon, they did find something, and this became the only known disappearance of the Bennington, of the Bennington Triangle where a body has turned up. Six months after she went missing, Langer's corpse was found near the Somerset Reservoir, curiously an open area that had been searched extensively numerous times in the previous months. Yet, even with the body, the case saw little resolution. It had decayed so badly that no cause of death could be determined, only fueling further speculation about what kind of disturbing end she may have met. The intriguing mysteries and unexplained events associated with the Bennington Triangle have caused many to speculate wildly about the possibility of nefarious 
and perhaps paranormal forces at work. Others believe that the burst of missing persons between 1945 and 1950 may have been at the work of a serial killer, but the sheer lack of evidence to back this up, as well as the variety in victims' victims' ages and genders defying the usual patterns of serial killers, likely rules out that theory as well. Others still contend that the disappeared met their demise at the claws of an indigenous mountain cat, such as a lynx, bobcat, or cougar. However, these cats are not known to be aggressive to humans, and mountain lions have not been credibly sighted in that area since before 1940. All in all, when trying the all in all, when trying to tie the disappearances together in hopes of discovering a solution to the mysteries, there's little to go on. The only known similarities between the most well-documented cases of the Bennington, of the Bennington Triangle are one, the close proximity of the disappearances, two, the time of day when most were last seen between 3 and 4 p.m., and three, the time of year when most were last seen, the final three months of the year. And with little in the way of evidence, paranormal theories have taken hold. For those interested in the paranormal, such theories dovetail with other more recent odd occurrences in the Bennington Triangle. These occurrences include terrifying voices allegedly showing up on dead air radio, sightings of mysterious figures, unexplained navigation mis mishaps, and planes that mysteriously crashed. Thus, it's no surprise that the Bennington Triangle attracts those with a penchant for the eerie to this day. And uh, there you have it, folks. I am officially out of stories for the day. I think I deserve some coffee. I hope you found joy in one of those. And I will see you next Monday. Okie dokie. Bye-bye. Love you. <laughs>